From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. This is going to sound a little bit strange, but I really enjoy kicking back after a long, hard day and reading a good book on leadership. Over the years, I've accumulated quite a collection. The problem is not too many people are interested in sitting around and discussing those books with me. That's certainly not the case with Frederick Maris, Vice President of European Sales at Splunk. It turns out he's a student of the discipline of leadership, just like I am. Over the course of his career, he's internalized the wisdom of great leaders and methodically gone about applying the principles he's learned to his life. Once you get to know Frederick, you're not really surprised by his approach. In his early days as a tennis player on the pro circuit, he developed the discipline to apply himself 100% to mastering the skills that would allow him to excel. But what may surprise you is how open Frederick is to discussing the twists and turns of his career and his life. Incidentally, he's really dug into the work of Brene Brown over the past several years. In today's episode, we'll break down his views on leadership, channel strategy, and how the best companies are harnessing data to take their sales efforts to the next level. Let's dive into the conversation. Well, you and I have had a chance to catch up as well. You've got a phenomenal story, and I'm really excited to dig into it. Before we get into that, though, I need to point something out. Now, the people that are listening to this can't actually see you, but you have a picture of one of my favorite bands looking over your shoulder. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on there? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it is a great picture. It's, uh, it's actually an original, one of 10 original uh, Anton Corbijn uh, uh, photos of you two on the Joshua tree. So the one, uh, the picture that was used for the album cover. And for those people that don't know uh, Anton Corbijn, he's a Dutch photographer and also uh, um, producer, video producer. Uh, he's, he's worked with you two with Depeche Mode, with Coldplay, Pavarotti, Mick Jagger, you know, Robert De Niro, BB King, all these kind of people. And um, I, I, it's a really great combination of art and, and music. You know, I love the album. It's an iconic album from my youth. There's actually, though, a fascinating story behind the origins of the name Joshua Tree. I don't know if you're familiar with how that actual tree got its name. No, no. So I, I've tried to track this story down. I don't know if it's actually true, but as the story goes, there was a group of travelers moving through the southwest of the United States near the Mojave Desert, which is close to Los Angeles. They saw this tree the tree actually reminded them of Joshua. And for those that, that subscribe to the Bible, and that's part of their religious tradition, Joshua and his people were traveling through the desert with Moses. And there's an episode where Joshua was told, if you hold your spear up and keep it up in the air, the people, your people will prevail. And they were in battle at one point, and he held his spear up in the air the whole time in order for his people to prevail. Those that were traveling through the southwest United States saw this and said, wow, that looks like a lot like Joshua, and hence the name was born. 
I love that story, though, because it's an intriguing story about leadership and the role that a leader plays, not only in terms of pointing the way, but keeping the team on track through the duration until they accomplish the mission. Well, it sounds a lot like Moses in the in the Red Sea. So a pretty, uh, pretty cool story. I hadn't heard about that, but um, U2 is actually the first um, uh, live uh, gig that I went to. Um, back in the day, I think it was 1980, it was around December 1984 in uh, San Francisco. So that, that's, that's the reason why I ended up uh, buying the, uh, the, the picture. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about your youth. One of the things that fascinates me about, and this started in your youth, but about your life is you've, as I understand it, moved 20 times. Can you tell us a little bit about the impact that had on you and, and maybe some of the specific experiences that you had when you were younger and how you broke into new groups? Yeah, so so my, my parents, um, uh, my father used to work for uh, Philips Electronics. And as a result, uh, he was basically sent over uh, first in the Netherlands in, in many different, uh, in a number of different cities. And then uh, he got sent to uh, Mexico and also to South Korea where we lived. And this, this really brought me up in a very international, open-minded way. But it also, it, it basically, you know, meant that, that you would have to make new friends every single time you, you got into a new country. And um, I had I'd actually uh, basically kind of like worked my way into uh, a group of kids at the school that I was at in, uh, in Mexico. And these were the, the, the cool kids, the sports kids. Uh, but they were a pretty tight-knit uh, group. And um, in one of the summers, we, we would always go back uh, to, to the Netherlands for, you know, to see the family and go on holiday, and summer holidays. And that usually was about a two-month summer break. And I hadn't seen those kids. And then when I, when I went back to school again, for some reason, they, they weren't accepting me back in, in that group again. And um, I, I remember my mother you know, being a bit concerned the first couple of weeks in school because I was sad and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't my, my usual self. And the teacher was also seeing that. And it got to a point where there was, you know, I wasn't working. And um, it, it's crazy if you think about it. But the teacher actually said, okay, guys, you know, this I've, I've had enough of it now. Um, you're going to take it outside. And I, I remember thinking, like, what do you mean? No, and she goes, um, you're going you're gonna to fight one of the kids from that group. And um, I wasn't that big. You know, I wasn't that strong. Um, the, uh, but, and, and they obviously picked the, the biggest kid of the group. It was, I think, eight kids or something. And I, I remember, the only thing I can remember is that I really gave it a good fight and I felt that I held my own. And after that, uh, that fight, it was back to being friends again and I was accepted. Um, but then my mom actually told me afterwards that uh, the teacher called her and she was like, you know, what, what's going on with your son? Is he, uh, is he doing karate or, or kung fu or something? Because, you know, seemingly I, I, I kind of you know, kicked, kicked, uh, kicked the guy's ass a bit. But uh, yeah, funny story. Wow, that's a that's a pretty the mean streets of Mexico. They send you to send you outside to take care of business. Yeah, I'm impressed. <laughs> There's something to that, though, around uh, and there are different ways to do this, but standing up for yourself and asserting yourself and at a young age, learning not to be taken advantage of. And I think when you can learn that, that follows you through life. Yeah, so that, that's definitely something. And, and I think it's one of the things that, that you have to, you know, you have to be 
you have to be truthful to yourself. And, and in general, if I will have a choice to, to run away, I will run away. But there's also a point where if, if I truly believe in something, then, you know, there's no way, no, no way now that I'm going to run away. Yeah, you've got to know when it's time to draw the line and, and hold your ground. Yeah. I know your dad was also a huge influence on you. We'll talk about tennis, and he was a great tennis player, as were you, in a little bit. But let's talk, first of all, about your father as a business person. Who was he, and what did he teach you? Yeah, he was, uh, so he worked at Philips uh, for, I, I think it was probably about 25 years. Um, he did a good job there. But he didn't really make it through to, to, the, to, to the top. And there was a point in time where uh, uh, it was like, okay, what's going to happen next? And then he was asked to take over a, a very small uh, subsidiary of uh, Philips back then, which uh, today is, is a very famous company, ASML Lithography. And um, the, uh, it's, it's, when, when he started off, it was... Almost, they, they were almost ready to, to shut uh, the company. Um, they had, I think, three percent market share in a, in a market that was dominated by uh, uh, Nikon and uh, uh, Canon, uh, two big players, two big Japanese players. And when he took over, um, he in, in the ten years that he was there, he transformed that company to being by far the market leader and you know a very strong uh, growth company for for the Dutch industry. A big money maker for uh, Philips because they went public and all these kind of things. And he was uh, he was the CEO there, where he built a team, and he really saw that team pretty much as his equals. Where you know everybody had their their role. Um, and and interestingly enough, if you if you look at uh, how they you know normally speaking, uh, the CEO always gets uh, the most uh, equity and everything. He he actually completely divided the equity at that level with the whole team, uh, which I think kind of shows what his, what, his, you know, what his ideas were and how he thought about uh, those things. And I can remember that when, uh, when he actually left the company, um, there, there was a, a day that, that they wanted to, 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 you know, to, to, to uh, celebrate is not the right word, but uh, to, uh, you know, to, to say thank you to him. And uh, they'd invited the family. So I was there as well with, with, with my mother and my brother, my sister. And uh, they, we, we had these tours and, and then we went in for lunch. And then after lunch, um, all of a sudden we were asked to, to walk to, to another building again. And as we walked through the building, all of a sudden there was a big hallway that, that filled up with just hundreds of people. And, and I, I still get goosebumps when I think of that because when we walked through, the, the noise was just incredible. And, and you could tell that the, the people were just clapping and, and they were cheering and it, it was heartfelt. You know, it was, it, they, they meant it. And, and that, was, that was something which was really special. I can really remember that. And then there was on one of the buildings, they, they put a, a big banner, Willem, thank you. Um, and I think six months later, when I was trying to sell something to ASML, you know, I drove by and that same banner was still there. So it, it, I, th I think he did some some special things for the company, and, and he built a, a very good relationship with the people there. And, and that's something that that I've tried to take with me, um, probably more so in, in in the in the latter part of my career. Because when I was a kid and, and playing tennis and everything, you know, you're very individual and 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 I think even to a certain extent selfish. And I've I've learned some some wise lessons there, and that's that's not the way to go. I can tell you that. 
I had a similar experience. My dad started off in sales. He sold jackets and he rose up through the ranks and he eventually became the president of London Fog, uh, which is a, a manufacturer of jackets here in the States. On his retirement day, they had a similar celebration to thank him for the work that he'd done. And a, a group of people gather around and people actually got emotional and they started to cry. And I remember I was a young person at the time being a part of this and seeing how these people respected my dad, not just as a professional, but as a friend. And, and I thought, what was it about my dad and his leadership style that, that allowed him to build this rapport? Then I went back to a story when I was a little kid, I went to work with him and we were coming out of his office. There was a security guard that was sitting next to the elevator and my dad went up and he greeted this person, knew his name, knew the names of his kids and had a brief conversation. It was clear to me that these guys were friends. Now, it's funny at the time, I was impressed that my dad knew the security guard because I assumed the security guard was the boss of everything. Now I realize that wasn't the case. But that was the secret to my dad's success from a leader perspective is he knew everyone. And as you said, he treated people as peers, not as subordinates. Yeah. So your dad also was a tennis player and encouraged you to get into tennis. Tell us a little bit about his background in tennis and also how you got into tennis and what your career looked like. Yeah, he was he was actually a, a multiple Dutch national champion uh, and uh, he beat uh he beat Tom Walker in one of the finals. Tom went went on to be, I think, top three or four in the world uh, at one point in time. Uh, but and he played uh, Wimbledon. He played Davis Cup. Uh, uh, but he, he wasn't good enough to really play more than that back then. Everything was still uh, amateur uh, tennis, so he had to, uh, you know, he had to go and work. And uh, when we were when we were uh, living in uh, South Korea, he would uh, still play tennis on a regular basis. We would go to the U.S. base. And I would usually come along and I would watch him. And, you know, once he was playing there, I started getting some balls against the wall and started to play with some other kids uh, on the base as well. And that's basically how my own tennis journey uh, started off. At the beginning, I wasn't that good, and, and, uh, but I enjoyed the game. And he never pushed me, but at the same time, he, he would play with me and he would encourage me. And, and then it, it kind of kicked off uh, from there. So your tennis career, was it, was it a str string of successes and victories one after another? Um, actually, no. You know, it, it, uh, I, was late, I started late. Most, most, if you want to play really well, then, you know, most kids, they start four years, six years, somewhere around there. I started when I was 11 or 12. I went, when we moved back to Holland, um, I got into like the, the national tennis system. And for the first year I was in there, but um, after the year... Um, I remember the training coming to, uh, to, to our house and sitting with my parents and, and I was sitting on the, uh, on the stairs, looking at that door and waiting for the guy to leave. And then uh, when he left, I asked basically, so what happened? And my parents told me, you know, you're out of the training system. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm going to stop and whatever. But then I said, well, that's, that's probably not the best thing to do. And, and it took me, I think. Two years later, I was beating all the kids that were still in there. And then I, I, I just continued to get better and better. Um, one of the kids that I played with uh, when we were juniors was Paul Harus. Paul went on to be number one doubles player in the world. He's won, I think, eight Grand Slams. And I ended up playing with, with Richard Krajicek, with, with Jan Simerink, with uh, 
uh, Jaco Elting, Mark Kuverman, so, so really the, the Dutch golden generation. And I, I definitely had some successes because together with Paul, we, we were just growing and growing and, and to a point where I was usually one year behind him, even though he was one year older. He became number, I think, number four, number five in the Netherlands. I became number 17. And then he continued. And I actually hit a complete brick wall. For two years, I couldn't hit a forehand. And that was in a period when you know, I was seriously probably considering to go professional on the tour. Um, and when you, when you, when, when the thing that you want to do most actually, you know, doesn't work anymore, you can't do that anymore. That was a, 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 a real tough time. Um, it took me two years to get out of that. And it, it taught me resilience, which is one of the things that I think is, is a bit of, uh, you know, something coming back in, in my life. Um, and I still played at a pretty decent level. But, uh, you know, never at, at, at that top level. So I was able to make some money, holidays, you know, and I, I had to obviously go to university. Um, and, and that's kind of, but, but I have great moments. There was a year where I, I got some points for the world rankings in doubles. Um, I, I went to, I coached a couple of the Dutch players and went to the Australian Open. We went to South America twice. I coached Mark Kuvemans to his only Grand Prix win in, in Athens. Um, so some good stories, but also, you know, definitely some, uh, some difficult uh, moments there. So that was a devastating point in your life. The dream comes to an end. Now that you have the perspective of time, how do you view the fact that your career, your tennis career ended? Was that a bad thing or was that actually some kind of a stepping stone in your life? No, I think, I think looking back, it's probably one of the good things that happened to me. The worst thing that you can do is, is try to go on the tour for six years and kind of be, you know, maybe at best 100 or 200, 300 in the world. That you're good enough not to give up, but, but not good enough to really make it. And, um, and then you, you don't get an education. I, I probably would have ended up a, a tennis coach and I think I would have done a good job there, but that would have been even more of a nomad life than what I live today. Because if, if, you, if you're going to be a good coach, then you're going to be gone every week and you're going to be gone every weekend as well. So, you know, there will be a very difficult family life. Um, and that basically made me go into, uh, into sales, go to university and into sales. And if I look back at my career now and, and where I stand and family and everything, then uh, I definitely think that's one of the positive things uh, that's, uh, that's happened to me. I think there's a really intriguing lesson there. So many times we hear, hold on to your dream, don't let it go, continue to push, continue to push, continue to push. But I also think that there's wisdom in recognizing this is not where I'm going to be world class. I'm going to set this to the side and I'm going to find that place where I can be world class. And sometimes when you're willing to let go and find something else, what you discover is that there's a better path that opens itself up to you. Well, an interesting thing, actually, and, and I like what you said here, uh, Justin, is that I, I, I would have a tendency, not that often, but it would happen on occasion that, that I would, you know, at important points, I would choke on the, on the tennis court. I also had, I had one season where I think three times I, I lost matches where I was up match points, but in that same season, I actually won three matches where I was down match points. So it wasn't only one side. But interestingly enough, in business, I actually feel like I never choke. You know, I, I, it, it, it's, a, it's a different on, on the tennis court. You get tense, it, you know, match point, whatever, important match or this. And in business, it, it's, it's much more of a, 
even though there's pressure and you, you need to get things done, it's much more of a free flow thing where you're in the zone and, and it, I, you, you just execute. It's, 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 it's a very interesting uh, uh, thing. There's a great book that, that I enjoy and one of the concepts in it is find your, your zone of genius and operate in your zone of genius. I think the way you articulate it is great. It's that place where you just don't choke. You have your flow. You And, and once you're there, it, it's magic what happens. So let's talk about your career then. You started off early in your career at PTC. First of all, how'd you get that job? Yeah, that's, that is actually a really cool story. So I was working for a small uh, reseller. Um, I, I, I basically came out of university, didn't want to go to work, had to... Uh, get um, uh, you know welfare in Holland so you needed to apply for certain jobs and on one of those jobs I actually got invited and then uh, got hired for this small catcom reseller it was a it was a reseller for PTC and I was there for nine months um, it was clear that that was not the company that I was going to spend the rest of my career with so I started interviewing and through the through one of the guys that I knew at PTC I got in touch with the RSD there with the with the first line sales manager had an absolutely great call with him. And then when, uh, when I was actually going to follow up uh, a couple of days later, um, I, was, I was out skiing for a couple of days in, um, in Ischko in, in Austria. And uh, there's a phone booth there uh, that, that I've, I've walked by numerous times because when I walked, I mean, when, when, uh, when I was there, I, I called Hans, the guy who was uh, uh, hiring me or was supposed to hire me, and uh, when I spoke to him, I was like, okay, Hans, how's it going? You know, what are the next steps? And he's basically, um, there are no next steps. And I didn't know what to say. And I, I basically, I, I, I just hung up and I was devastated. And I remember going to bed that night. The next day we drove back home. And while I was in the car, I was thinking that was probably not the right uh, reaction. So when I got home, I, I picked up the phone again. I called Hans and I said, Hans, you know, I really apologize for yesterday. It, 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 you know, I went down like a boxer and I was out for 10 seconds and didn't get up anymore. But um, I, should, I, I should have just asked you all the questions. I said, we had a great call. You know, what happened? And, you know, why aren't you taking me to the next step? And I'd also spoken to, uh, to the guy that I knew at PTC. And he explained to me that Hans was actually under a lot of pressure. He just had two really bad quarters and he'd gone to his boss with the resume of, 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 of me without basically any experience. And they were looking for people with at least five or six years of uh, successful sales experience. So the guy said, you know, I don't even want to see the guy. And when I understood that, I asked uh, Hans, you know, do you mind if I actually call him myself? Because I think he's making a mistake. And he said, look, if you want to call him, then absolutely be my guest. So I waited until uh, after Christmas, because obviously before Christmas, really busy. The guy wasn't going to have any time. He was closing deals. And then um, I spoke to him. I got him on the line. And uh, it was a really tough interview. For, actually, not an interview. It was a really tough first couple of minutes because he asked me one question. And I, I, I basically realized at that point in time it was the weirdest feeling that if I would answer the question, you know, in, in one way, my career would go here. And if I would answer the other the question in another way, my career would, would go a different way. And that was literally what I felt. And I, 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 I knew that I had to get it right, but I didn't know what he wanted to hear. And then it took too long. And he basically said the first word of the answer. I immediately, you know, 
just took over and explained him exactly what he wanted to hear. And he's like, why didn't you say that in the first place? And I said, look, it's so obvious. It was the, 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 the USP of the product. And, and I said, it's so obvious. You know that I know that. So, you know, why, why would I need to say that again? And he said, look, you, you can never forget the USP. You always have to have it, you know, on the tip of your tongue. And, and I'm like, yeah, I, I totally believe you, but, um, you know, can I, can I see you? Can I get the job? And then he invited me to, to, to fly over a couple of days later. And I ended up getting the job, which, which was, you know, totally thrilling because PTC back then was a pretty, you know, pretty famous company, a tough company as well. Um, and and I, I remember when I signed the contract that I was on one side, I was really scared if I was going to survive. On the other side, I was totally excited about the opportunity. The bad thing was that when Feats offered me the job, he basically offered me like half the package that he gave to everybody else, uh, which is still twice as much as what I was waking, making before. But I, and I, I said, that's not fair. And he said, uh, I, I totally get that's not fair, but that's the offer. Um, will you take it? And I basically said, I'll, I'll take it on the condition that if I prove to you that I'm as good as all these other people, that I would be back and you need to give me more. Um, and so I said, yes. And he said, yes. And, you know, I went back six months later and 12 months later and he gave me some more. He didn't give me everything, but that's basically how my career took off there. I go back to that story you told about the kid in Mexico that took it outside, stood up for himself. And I got to believe that there was a little bit of that inside of you when you had the guts to get back on the phone and stand up for yourself and say, we had a great interview. What happened? It feels like that raw energy is what ultimately got you back into the game at PTC. Yeah, and I, I think that it is also really about being true to yourself because I'd interviewed with two or three other companies and, and I was even offered one or two jobs. But they just didn't feel right. You know, I, I'm somebody that I have to have passion. I have to believe in things. And when I, when I was on the phone with PTC, for some reason, that felt like I really want this. And, and then, I'm, you know, I, I just wasn't going to be denied. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time uh, moving forward in your career. The time that you spent at EMC, there's a really important set of experiences that you accumulated as you ran channels. And that's an area that we haven't probed a lot on the show Running channels, though, is an art unto itself, a science unto itself. Can you talk a little bit about what the best companies are doing related to running channels? Yeah, and the, the interesting thing was that, um, as with many different things in my career, um, I, I started off doing the channels with basically very little or no experience. Um, and and I, I truly do believe that it is, all of it is common sense. It's logic, right? It's It's... Just like when you deal with customers, it has to be a win for the customer. They have to get a return on their investment. Um, you have to build a good relationship with your customers. You have to be able to look somebody in the eye. And with, with partners, this is basically the same thing. You, you, you need to understand where your partner is going to play, right? If, if, because you're, you're always talking about coverage and what can you do yourself and what are you going to ask your, your partners to do? And that needs to fit into their strategy as well, because you can never force a partner to do something that he doesn't want to do. They'll be forced as long as they have to. But if they if they have a choice, they're going to go somewhere else. They'll, they'll work with a different vendor. Um, and it's so it, it, there's a couple of things that I've learned that were very important there uh, to be to say what you do and to, to do what you say, because 
partners want to know they, they want to they want to know what's going to happen what you know what what they can what they can count on and then the other part is they have to make money because if and just like anybody in business if you're not going to make money if you're not going to get the return on the time that you put into something then it's just not going to work out and i think today in these days there are too many people that that expect something from their partners that if you look at their 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 strategy if you look at their you know mission if you look at their their initiatives it's just not going to happen and then yet you get into these awkward situations where you've got QBRs and the big elephant in the room is that something's not going to happen but you expect it to happen anyway and then you kind of have you know poor after poor uh, QBR that notion of partnership is so important and too often i find that companies have an antagonistic relationship with the partners they feel like the partners are not being forthcoming. The, the partners feel like the vendor isn't being forthcoming with them. And to your point, if that's the kind of situation you're in, there's, there's never going to be success. Yep. Do you have an example of a partnership that started off rocky and how you were able to turn it around? Yeah, this was a story um, probably about 10 years later. So I worked with uh, in the, in, a lot in the Nordics uh, at EMC with, with some partners there. And there was somebody that, that you know, I'd worked with uh, for a couple of years. And then when I joined Splunk, um, I, I ran into a situation in the Nordics with one of our partners there where um, I was hearing a story from one of our sales guys that, you know, we were, we were working on a deal and uh, the partner was this and that. And they wanted too much. And we were, you know, forcing them to do something that when I looked at the story, I just said, you know, hey, this, this just doesn't make sense. And, um, and I, I, I got in contact with the partner. Um, that was somebody that had done a reference check on me by calling that person that I worked with 10 years before. And that person actually said, you know, hey, Frederick's a pretty good guy. So, you know, I, I would assume you're going to work well with him. And that, I, I think the, it, it's, it's so important to do what is right, um, you know, whenever, because you never know whether in two years, five years, 10 years time, it's going to come back and, and it's going to facilitate, it's going to help you. And in this case, the guy was actually open to, to speak to me and he and I went through the, the deal. Um, and, and when I heard that, I'm basically like, guys, you know, we, we, we can't we can't do what we what, what we want to do because we're actually screwing the partner in this situation. And uh, we turned that around. Um, we actually went back to the original deal. What was the right deal? And obviously, the partner was really thankful. Um, so short term, it cost us money. But if you take a look at what happened in the 6, 12, 18, 24 months after that, I mean, we, you know, we, 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 we managed to grow the business with that partner in a, in a really big way. And it was definitely worth that, that investment, I think, from, from our side into the partner and, and to build that relationship and to make it a very strong partnership. Wow. So you had a, a reference that came back to you after a decade. That's, yep. that's so telling just in terms of these relationships that we build and the kind of impact that they have on our careers. And I think also just taking the long view of business, recognizing that while we think too often in terms of today, this week, this quarter, business is a long arc. And uh, when you take a long-term view, ultimately, that's what allows you to set yourself up and your company up for success. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer that um, if you actually focus on the process, the, the results are going to follow. And that, it, it, there, you know, usually there is no magic bullet. It's just grinding it out, you know, putting in your cadence, um, working on, 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 on the small things every single day. And then you're going to see that, that you're going to build a really strong foundation. And that foundation is going to turn into, uh, into success. I want to talk a little bit about a phrase I've heard you use. It's an intriguing phrase, unconsciously competent versus consciously competent. I actually heard you use that in conjunction with the time that you spent at BMC. That's where I think you say you made the transition from unconsciously to consciously competent. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about what that phrase means and how your time at BMC allowed you to achieve that? Yeah, so when I started it, uh, and this actually goes back to the PTC time, you know, that's where I learned uh, sales and, and the, the medic process and, you know, all these different things. Um, but what happened there is I learned it and then I became unconsciously competent. I actually forgot that I knew that, but it became part of who I was. Um, and and I, I, I was, I guess I was successful um, the, the next basically 10 years on you could almost call it the automatic pilot. And then when I when I joined BMC and uh, when uh, when I started working for for Jeremy Jeremy Duggan, then I really got dragged back to the the sales process. And and that's been one of the um, I think you know the, the the times I've learned the most in my career. And he really made me consciously competent, which means that you you know what you know. And um, you, you realize what it is that you do know, what you, what, what you don't know, why you're doing things, what works, what doesn't work, um, instead of basically, you know, doing it on your gut. And, and I'll give you an example where this came, uh, where, where it was a very big difference with before and after. So the before was that when I would interview people, I would speak to people and the conversation could go multiple different ways. And then at the end of the interview, I was like, I like this person, but I didn't really know why. And I was usually right, but I was like, okay, let's, let's move forward with this person. And then at BMC, as with, with the sales process, we had a, a, a good process around uh, recruiting and we knew exactly what we were looking for. So if you then start to look for the intelligence and the character and the coachability and the relevant experience, with the candidates, then every question in that interview is towards one of those four. The experience is easy because you can usually see that from a resume, you know, from, from anything like that. But the other three, figure out if somebody's intelligent or not, figuring out what kind of character they have and figure out if they're coachable or not, you really have to start to look for that. And, and that's, you know, how I became consciously competent. And uh, I think it's, it's probably one of the big reasons why I'm actually, you know, in this position uh, today. You talked about a couple of characteristics. I hear those again and again. I was just talking to Luca Lazaron, who's the CRO over at Sprinkler. And I said, Luca, what do you look for when you're hiring talent? And he said exactly what you said. They've got to be coachable. They have to have an innate drive. They have to have a curiosity. If I have those three elements, I can teach them all the rest of the things they need to know about sales, but I can't teach them those elements. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And this comes from the same school. I mean, Luca... Luca basically hired me at BMC. Uh, Jeremy interviewed me back then. That was at the point where Luca went from the EMEA role to the worldwide role, and then Jeremy took over. 
Um, so yes, it was uh, great working with those guys. How do you set up an organization or a program where those those people that are in the program can become consciously competent? What do you need to do? Um, well, and, and this is where I, you know, I, I make um, make a lot of uh, analogies to to sports. Um, I, I I really enjoy that, and I think it, it it helps people to understand. So in sports. Look at the NFL Combine, for instance, right? They, um, um, you know exactly how heavy somebody is, their, their height, um, how high they can jump, uh, the 40 meter, 40 yard dash, uh, push-ups, whatever intelligence even, they do the wonder lick, you know, all that gets measured. In, in, uh, in, in, in European football, you know, how many passes do you give? What's the ratio of the successful passes? Um, meters covered, um, you know, the, the analytics on, on, uh, attacks over which flank, what happens then? So if you want to be good in what you do, then you have to start to measure things. And, and for some reason in sales, many, many salespeople believe that they're artists and that they can come in and, you know, let us just do what we do. Uh, but that's not the way it works. And that's never the way that you can actually build a, uh, an organization and, and be able to scale that organization. So you're going to have to build a process around it and, and have your methodology and then start to me measure that methodology. And, and the, I think the, the challenge always is that, you know, people feel like, hey, big brother's watching me and you need to do it in such a way that you actually inspire those people and that you help them. And it becomes clear that because you're working with them, because you're, you're tracking to understand what do, they, what do they do really well? What do they not do well? Where do you need to help them? How do you make them better? And if you start to do those things, then all of a sudden you're going to see those same people in the beginning are saying, you know, why do you need to do this? They, they start to, uh, to come back and say, hey, you canceled the last meeting. Um, I'm not having that. You know, you, you and I need to, need to make up and catch up for that meeting because they see that if they work with you, that they actually start to increase their close rates, their, their, you know, their, their achievements uh, start to increase and they start to do a lot better. I love the analogy with professional sports. Athletes are just used to being measured in thousands of ways. And in fact, they've used that to advan their advantage to prove their game. But you're right. In so many cases, salespeople start to push back if, if you monitor too many metrics. So I think, I think the key, as you said, is helping people to realize, salespeople, if we can track these metrics, it's actually going to help you to be a more professional salesperson, hit your quota achieve the goals that, that you've got. That's the key is it's got to be positions in, as an advantage. Absolutely, 100%. What role does AI have come to play in all of this? Um, I think the, the, the more data you start to track, the more, um, the more trends you start to see because it's, it's not always difficult to, to, or it's not always easy to see what's going on. And, and that's, that's really where I think, you know, Splunk as a company also comes in um, with, with, with so much going on, so many different types of data, um, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you kind of sometimes just t take a distance, look at what's going on and really understand what, what are, what are the underlying trends? Because if you understand which dials you need to tweak, then all of a sudden you're, you're going to really improve your business. I mean, I think everybody recognizes that these times are absolutely crazy. There's, there's so much work to do. So it becomes so important to understand where are you going to, 
you know, what are you going to spend your time on? What are you going to try to make better? What are your priorities? What are those two or three things that are going to make a big difference versus a, a hundred things that you potentially could do, but they're not going to have the impact to make you, uh, to bring you the success you need? Yeah, very practical example of that. I remember when I was a frontline sales manager, I had seven reps I was managing and I would always play this game I affectionately call 21 questions. New rep would get on. I'd have to go through 21 questions before I could finally get to the thing that really mattered. The beauty of AI is it does the work for you and it takes 21 questions and turns them into two. It says, here are the two things that really matter. Ask these two questions and you'll get to the heart of the risk, the heart of the thing that rep needs to change. Yep. So you, over the course of your career, Frederick, have developed an incredible mindset, this notion of resilience, uh, standing up for yourself, being true to yourself. I know, though, that that has come not only through successes that you've achieved, but also through challenges that you faced in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges and how those have shaped you in a positive way as well? So when I when I basically left PTC, um, I, I joined a small, uh, actually two, two Dutch companies, two, two small Dutch uh, startups. Um, it was also a time when uh, when I when I basically went through a divorce with my ex-wife, and um, uh, I actually went into a I had a depression back then, and there was a period in time that I didn't necessarily need to work because of some financial things going on. I actually lost a, a huge amount of money back then, which uh, in hindsight, again, you know, not the greatest experience, but um, I'm, I'm much much happier where where I am today. And when I went through my depression, um, I was in, I, I went to, in, in, into a therapy sessions. I did some one-on-one. I also did some, some group sessions. And, and when I, you know, when I looked at, at where this came from, nine out of 10 times, it always has to do with your parents. And I think that with my father, I was always very competitive. And before that, um, I, I, I guess I ended up, you know, feeling I wasn't worthy enough. So I always had to prove myself. And every day that you don't prove yourself, you don't get that that shot or that fix. Um, and and I think this is something that that I kind of resolved for myself. It took me about a year and a half to to get through this. Um, but when I came out of it, I ended up still being probably equally um, ambitious as I was. But it came from a different uh, place. It came much more from a a place of peace and from what I wanted to do instead of something that I had to do. And, and that, that was for me the start of my you know, second part of my career. Um, I tried working for Dutch companies twice, couldn't manage. I've worked for US companies, I think five or six times now, and it's always worked out really well. Um, we, I also had um, some experiences with depression from, from another side. My, my wife, who I met right after, kind of when I got out of my depression, she actually went into her own depression from uh, 2008, uh, just uh, two years after our son got born, when we got married. And that took until about 2013, which is quite a long time, five years. Initially, she had said after two years that um, if she wasn't able to get out of it, that she basically wasn't interested in, in, in living anymore. And she got to a point where she was, you know, really suicidal, um, which was difficult and tough because you still somehow, you know, I, I had to keep working because at that point in time, I didn't have the financials not to work. And um, it, it was a struggle because we also had a child in, in, in house. Um, and, and how do you, you know, how do you segment or how do you 
compartmentalize what's going on at home and then still continue to work and, and, and do the things you need to do there and, and be there for her as much as you can, um, which, which at one point got really bad um, to a point where we basically sent her off to India where she stayed uh, for two or three months in total. And she completely stopped with all med medication, um, with all antidepressants, which was in the end, the best thing that could have happened. And uh, when she came back, she, um, she, 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 she's not been suicidal anymore for, for a single day. And, and it, it's been a gradual, gradual, just, you know, increase in, 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 in her mood and her feeling. And, you know, we're, we're seven years further now. And we're just both so thankful in, in both of us, you know, having kept fighting to, to make it work because we always felt something in our relationship together that uh, it was worth it and that we were meant to be together. Um, and, and if I see her now and the, the energy that she has and the life experience and everything is just, you know, it's just amazing and wonderful. And I think the, one of the big lessons here is that, um, you know, th th there are so many things worth fighting for um, and, and and also realizing that there are a lot of people that, you know, go through similar situations. So you always need to understand, you know, hey, what's going on with that person that you're speaking to? Because we usually see the professional side, but there's always stuff going on on the personal side as well. There's a human behind the professional and being able to empathize and and have compassion for those people that you interact with on a daily basis. And going back to our previous conversation is the hallmark of a great leader and, and a great individual. Yeah, that's that's something that, that I think I've I've learned, you know, in, in, in all these years, and, and something that I try to, to 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 implement with the people that I work with. And it actually just makes working with those people a lot more fun too. I know you're also a student of leadership. You read a lot on the subject. Can you share maybe one or two? of your favorite lessons or your favorite books related to building leadership qualities? Yeah, it's, 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 it's been a combination of, of coaching, of mentoring, of uh, reading books and some of the, the interesting books that I've, you know, read and, and uh, that I really appreciate. Uh, uh, things like First Break All the Rules by Mar Marcus Buckingham. Um, we actually saw him on stage at EMC uh, one year, which was really cool. Just really inspiring to see him there. Um, How the Human Brain Works, for instance, Chimp Paradox by uh, Dr. Steve Peters. And he's somebody who worked with the uh, British cycling team and uh, helped Chris Hoy to a couple of gold medals. Um, so, you know, how do you control your, 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 your thoughts and your, your moods and these kind of things? Um, Sean Aker with the happiness advantage and uh, big potential is, is absolutely great. Um, that's certainly been a big inspiration and somebody like Brene Brown on daring greatly and vulnerability. I mean, these are, these are things that I, um, yeah, that, that, that have really helped me and, and inform me who I am today. I love the book first break all the rules. That's, that's a bit of an older book. And I think sometimes it's forgotten. It's one of the first books that I read about leadership. What I really agree with in that book is the premise that People are inherently who they are. They bring their unique set of strengths and weaknesses. And great managers don't try to change people and mold them into someone that they're not. What they are able to do is find the inherent strengths of that person. And then I think actually Marcus uses the analogy 
they view them as plants and they put them in the right environment and then they see them flourish. That has been such a powerful leadership principle to me as I've worked with other people through my career. Yeah, very powerful indeed. Well, Frederick, it's been a great conversation. We've covered a lot of ground from professional sports to how to run channels, some great lessons in leadership and in life. I thank you for that. Maybe as a final question, I'd like to ask, as you look back on your career and your life, what's the one thing that's made the biggest difference for you? In all fairness, I don't think it's one thing. It's it's a couple of things put together. Um, and, and for me, that's been, you know, I think uh, being relentless and being resilient uh, because I, I never give up and I always get back up. Um, I always think in possibilities and what I can do to change things. What do I have, you know, in, in, in my control? And then lastly, I, I just I've been fortunate enough to work with, you know, a lot of great people and, and build some really great friendships um, and, and relationships with those people. And I think that culmination is is something that, you know, I'll, I'll cherish with me forever and, and why I really enjoy doing what I do. Never give up and always get back up. Great words to end on. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great, uh, Justin, uh, speaking to you today. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.